Well, greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Seminary Unboxed, the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary. I'm Dr. Matt Ayers, the host of Seminary Unboxed and president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Wesley Biblical Seminary exists to develop trusted leaders for faithful churches. You can find out more about WBS at uh, wbs.edu. So I want to continue on uh, in our study of the book of Revelation. We didn't get very far last week, and we're going to try to make up some more ground here uh, today. And as I noted before, um, we're going to start moving faster. Uh, It's important that we get through some of the interpretive issues in the opening sections, as good introductions do. They are pregnant with the themes for the rest of the book. And so once we get some of these uh, initial concepts down that are introduced to us in the first chapter, and we get that foundation really solid, uh, then we can uh, move along a little quicker. So where we left off was in verse 4, uh, where it says, verse chapter 1, verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who was, excuse me, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Uh, so these seven spirits, uh, we're not exactly sure what this means. There are going to be several times in the book of Revelation where we go, yes, we know exactly what this refers to, we know exactly what this means. Other times we just have to hit the mystery button. We're not exactly sure. And so um, there are two primary schools of thought in, uh, with regard to interpreting these seven spirits. The first is that these seven spirits are in reference to the Holy Spirit. Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the sevenfold spirit. So seven being the number of completion, right, that we looked at with regard to the letter to the seven churches, seven referring back to the days of creation, that God's work was complete after seven. And so uh, the letters to the seven churches, yes, they are to seven specific historical churches, but because it's specifically seven, they are also letters for the universal church, all of the church, completing the church. Um, and so similarly here with the notion of seven, this could refer to the uh, complete Spirit of God, the seven spirits of the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't to say that the Holy Spirit's like divided into... Those who take this school of thought, which I personally don't, those who think that this refers to the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that they think the Holy Spirit can divide it, be divided up into seven different personalities, right? There's certainly what we call pneumatological implications of this interpretation, Um, but none of which would threaten orthodoxy, of course, because orthodoxy is the preservation of the biblical witness. Um, So seven, completion, the Holy Spirit is the complete spirit, but not just with the notion of completion. There's a second argument on which they base uh, the notion that these seven spirits who are before his throne refer to the Holy Spirit, and they go back to Isaiah 11, uh, verse 2, as well as Zechariah 4, verses 2 to 10. But specifically, Isaiah 11, 2, uh, which um, a lot of you know is one of the famous messianic prophecies from the book of Isaiah, um, there's a list of different spirits that will rest on the Messiah, right? And um, in our our versions that come from the Masoretic text that is the basis for our common English translations, there's only six different spirits listed there. But in the Septuagint version, which John certainly would have been aware of in the first century AD, um, there's seven spirits listed. And so let me read the text from the Septuagint for you. It says this, this is Isaiah 11, 2 to 3 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, of the Masoretic text. And the Spirit of God shall rest upon him. Him is, the, is Jesus, the Messiah, right? The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, good, godliness, and the fear of God. So there's seven spirits. So one is wisdom, two, understanding, three is counsel, four is strength, knowledge is five, six is godliness, and seven is the spirit of fear of God. 
So uh, there's an assumption here, there's an assumption that John would have been aware of the Septuagint tradition and reading that identifies seven different spirits associated with uh, the Messiah. And so how would this flesh out specifically for the book of Revelation? It's the idea that it's the spirit is the means by which God will destroy the might and power of the dragon and the beast in the Messiah. Um, There are some very strong and well-known Bible scholars who take this, uh, who's who agree with this school, this, this, this interpretive line, that this refers to the Holy Spirit, and so I want to give it uh, you know, due credit. This is not where I am, though. I don't know that there's enough evidence in the immediate context of the book um, that suggests to explicitly you know, suggest that this is, in fact, the Holy Spirit. It could be, you know, right? I don't believe that this is by any means doctrine or dogma, uh, but rather just an interpretive decision that we have to make. So I think that these seven spirits refer to angels. Um, now, there's a distinction here. One of the, so I, I said there's two primary schools of thought. One is the Holy Spirit. The second is um, angels. But specifically, the Jewish there's a Jewish tradition uh, that sees these as the archangels of the Jewish tradition. So the seven archangels, which we don't read about all seven in our um, Christian canon, although the others are referenced in some of the apocryphal literature. So the seven are, for those who are interested, their names, uh, Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, Sarakael, Gabriel, and Remiel. Of course, of these seven, the only two that are referred to in the Christian canon are Michael and Gabriel. Um, so uh, to suggest that these are from the, the Jewish tradition of the seven archangels, that very well could be. John, the author of this book, um, certainly would have been aware of the seven archangels. Um, one of the issues I have, however, is that I do believe that while John is the one writing these things, that the Holy Spirit inspires these things. And so the Holy Spirit's revealing um, this message, the content, this prophecy, this apocalypse for the entire church, and the, the entire church is cons- as is... Um, as, as regards to the entire church, there's not like a strong familiarity with the seven archangels of the Jewish tradition. And so I just wonder about that there. However, I think that we can probably, what I think, seven just generic angels, some kind of um, special angels of special status, that could be archangels. Um, the reason that um, I think that these are archangels, or excuse me, the reason I think that these are angels, the seven spirits who are before his throne, is because they are later referred to as lampstands or torches or flames. Names. And that is symbolism that is used throughout the book of Revelation to refer to as angels. And also in uh, the book of Psalms, uh, the heavenly host, angels are referred to as burning lights or torches before the throne of God, uh, not the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is certainly conceptualized or symbolized in um, in the element of fire, as we see fire coming upon the tabernacle in the Old Testament, tongues of fire um, on over the heads of the apostles at Pentecost. So it doesn't rule out the Holy Spirit. I just there's I don't know of any other place in Scripture that would divide up the Holy Spirit in this way, um, except for the Isaiah 11 passage. So if you were to weigh the evidence on both sides, I feel like biblically there's more textual evidence for these as being angels as flames or torches or fire, symbolized in fire, um, when you add up what we see in Revelation together with the Psalms, uh, compared to uh, two instances in the prophetic literature. But nonetheless, I don't think it matters a ton. Um, you know, It's not often that um, theologians are going to build a pneumatology, or that is a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, out of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation doesn't say a ton about the Holy Spirit. Um, so one, one, I think, strength to interpreting this as the Holy Spirit is that right out the gate then we have a kind of a triune um, presence in the, 
the salutation and doxology of the book. We have reference to God the Father, God the Son, and if this seven spirits who are before the throne is the Holy Spirit, then we have the Holy Spirit mentioned as well. Um, so, But nonetheless, that's not like a slam dunk proof or anything, uh, but it is one of the, let's say, nice outcomes if this is the Holy Spirit. But I, I, right now, I'm of the persuasion that this is angels. And again, I'm not sure it matters a ton. But those are the two views, seven, eight, seven spirits, Holy Spirit on the one hand, or angels on the other hand. Um, and that phrase, by the way, does appear, the seven spirits, four other t- or three other times, four times total in the book of Revelation. So we'll, we're going to encounter this yet again. And, and I think the big picture is that the seven angels are um, one part of a myriad of uh, beings, created beings, worshiping God in his presence in his throne room, but also being sent out to complete his redemptive work. So we're going to see them, encounter them again here uh, before too long. So uh, let's move on then to verse 5 that says, uh, verse 5 is a continuation. It starts with a conjunction and, so I want to get four with it. John says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and was to come and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. So this is interesting. Uh, Here in verse 5, we have Jesus Christ referred to as the faithful witness witness. And uh, there's a ton that we can say about this. I will. The first thing I want to say biblically is in Psalm 89, uh, which is very much a Davidic psalm in the book of Psalms, um, there are verses 35 to 37. When I say Davidic, I'm talking a connection to uh, notions of the Messiah and anticipation of a Messiah, right? And so uh, this is an important messianic psalm. So in reference to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. So Psalm 89, 35 to 37 says, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. This is God speaking. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. So in other words, there's an association with Jesus and the righteousness of God in fulfilling his promise to David. So Jesus is a faithful witness to lots of different things. We talked about Jesus as a revealer who points to things. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he reveals um, God. He reveals God the Father, but he also is the character of God, the love of God, all sorts of things. He is the, the imprint of God's very nature, right? As we read in the book of Hebrews. But he also reveals what humanity is supposed to be. He is a witness to what the Adam is, what that God intended to be, who that was supposed to be. So he reveals that. But he also, more specifically, is a witness to God's faithfulness. God made promises, and in Jesus, those promises are fulfilled. And so that's the notion we have being pulled in here from Psalm and the anticipation of a Davidic king to come, Psalm 89. Um, I think it's also important to put point out um, later on in the book of Revelation, uh, there is Antipas who is referred to as the faithful witness. And that's like one of the highest titles or appellations, names uh, that one could be given in the apocalypse is faithful witness. Um, and so, and of course, as a faithful witness, he is a martyr. He is one who was killed for his faithfulness to Christ in the likeness of Christ, right? Jesus was killed for his faithfulness and his faithful obedience to the Father, thereby putting the love and steadfast faithfulness of God on display for the world to see. And likewise, those who um, who um, are obedient to the faith even unto death and pay the ultimate price uh, are, are can be classified in that same category. So, um, it's a, it's a very high title, faithful 
witness. Now, in addition to this, the word witness in Greek is martyr, martyr, which we're all familiar with, M-A-R-T-Y-R, because of what it's associated with in terms of one who dies for their faith. And of course, the great apologist in the early church, Justin Martyr, who did die for his faith. Um, But notice that the, the, just the generic word witness, martyr, becomes associated with unto death. So there's a faithfulness that is uh, uh, inextricably linked to the notion of witness, as opposed to false witness. And we know that one of the Ten Commandments do not bear false witness. Um, So faithful witness. Um, A witness is one who attests to the truth where the truth is disputed. And so um, John himself, right? And so this letter, again, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, uh, who's writing from Patmos, is there as as an exile because of his witness, which we're going to see in verse 9. And so John knows very much about this notion of being a faithful witness, and he himself is suffering because of his witness. It's attesting to the truth, um, obviously attesting to the truth in a time of opposition uh, can lead to death. That's, that's what being a faithful witness is, is, is maintaining that witness of truth even unto death, even if it means death. Um, I want to give you a quote from Grant Osborne here in his, his commentary on Revelation. Grant Osborne's a great exegetan scholar, wrote one of my favorite hermeneutics uh, textbooks called The Hermeneutical Spiral, but also has written several commentaries. He says this, the idea of witness in Revelation is linked to themes of persecution, where it comes close to the later, the later meaning of martyr um, and perseverance. Jesus is the archetype and paradigm for the believer who also must stand against evil and idolatry when it, mean, when it may mean one's life. So what Osborne is doing here is, is giving a more historically you know, precise, contextualized interpretation of this name for Jesus. There's all different things that John could call Jesus, but here he calls him the faithful witness. Well, why? Because he's writing to a church that's persecuted. And their calling in the likeness of Christ is to be a faithful witness. Now, what's interesting is that the resurrection then comes into view, vindication for that faithfulness, being proved right before one's enemies in the end. Just as Christ was risen, so you will raise as a result of your faithful witness. You know, the word conquer is going to come up a lot. For the one who conquers, I will give him eternal life. I will let him eat of the hidden man. I will give him a stone on which his name is, a white stone on which his name is written. So all of these notions of conquering and uh, perseverance, he who perseveres to the end in the book of Revelation is certainly um, contextualized by the fact that this is written to a persecuted church. And so this notion of faithful witness falls right into place here. Um, So, of course, we could ask the question, how is Jesus faithful in his witness? What justifies this title? I've mentioned a few uh, answers to that question in passing. How is Jesus faithful in his witness? Well, first, he is faithful in mediating this message to John from God. So the book that we have in our hands called Revelation is the result of Jesus being the revealer and being faithful in his witness to God to John. So this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, We talked about whether that's a subjective or objective genitive, and we agreed that uh, it is a subjective genitive that Jesus is doing the revealing, and he is faithful in his revealing. Um, So he is faithful in mediating this very message that is the book of Revelation to John. Uh, Secondly, he's faithful in bearing witness to the truth about God's love and trustworthiness. Dying on a cross puts the love of God on display uh, before the world in contrast to, or in order to, let's say, debunk the lie uh, of the original sin in the garden that God does not want what's best for us. The serpent says, did God really say, don't, you can't eat of any of the trees? Well, no, it's not quite what he said. 
says, well, he just doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he doesn't want you to be like him. In other words, he's withholding something from you, and he has his own interests uh, ahead of your interests. And Jesus's death on the cross says no to that. It says that God's interest is the other, the interest of the other always supersedes his own. And so Jesus is faithful in his death on the cross in revealing that very message. Thirdly, faithful witness to what humanity was always supposed to be, which I've already mentioned. Jesus is the true Adam, the true man. So um, and now we have the firstborn. Of, so and Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. So Jesus is the first of many to be resurrected. So firstborn of the dead. There's going to be many who will be resurrected. In fact, all will be resurrected, and then there will be the final judgment. Um, but he is the first. Of course, we can talk about Lazarus, um, who was also resurrected. However, Lazarus eventually died again. Right. So Jesus is the first of a glorified body, the first of the of the new Adam race in Christ to achieve this status, and he paves the way. He's the pioneer and perfecter of the faith, right? So this firstborn language means both, uh, there's a couple things. On the one hand, it means that he is literally the first, right, in terms of, um, in terms of, let's say, chronology, that there's going to be many, and all the rest will follow after him. But there's also another sense of the word firstborn of the dead, and that is preeminent, which means most important, um, of highest rank. So he's not just first chronologically. Um, sometimes we see the word firstborn, uh, like in Colossians, for example, uh, Psalm 89. Um, but in those cases, firstborn is not referencing chronology, not literally first among others to follow, but rather it means the most important one, the preeminent one. So um, this reference to firstborn of the dead then um, certainly instills hope for future resurrection of believers. In other words, Jesus was a faithful witness and resurrected. Therefore, if you are a faithful witness in face of your persecution, you too will be resurrected because firstborn implies there will be others, and those others are, of course, you. Um, So firstborn of the dead. Uh, Let's see here. It's this, this same phrase is mentioned in Colossians 1, 18 to 20, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the, the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So there we have preeminent language there in Colossians 1, 18 to 20. Um, so now we move on to the phrase, and the ruler of kings on earth. Um, you know, of course, this is going to be a major theme contextualized for this first century audience because the kings on earth set themselves against the church at the bequest, behest of the beast and of and ultimately the dragon and then the beast of the sea and the beast of the land will get land. We'll get into those notions later on in the book. Um, but those rulers ultimately are under Christ. And uh, what is uh, the evidence of that? Well, of course, it's his resurrection. He is in a category in and of himself. No Caesar has risen from the dead to live forever. Um, And even the dragon has not risen from the dead to live forever. Um, Now, we're going to see later on that there's a beast who appears with a, a... a wound that looks fatal, yet it didn't kill him. And we'll talk about what that means with regard to possibly Nero. Um, but that's going to be a parody of, of the slain lamb. Um, really interesting imagery there. The slain lamb, he has received a wound, a wound, but he has died and resurrected versus a beast that has received a mortal wound but did not die. So in other words, there's a counterfeit a counterfeit savior. And that counterfeit savior, of course, is the government of the world, human kingdoms. Those who, um, pr- those who offer um, 
financial prosperity, health, and wealth, and peace. But those are counterfeit, real prosperity, health, wealth, and peace. And I'm not talking about prosperity gospel here. I'm talking about eternal holy things uh, is found in the Lamb and the love of God. So, But Jesus is preeminent over all the kings of the earth. So while these kings of the earth run about hurting, torturing, persecuting Christians... Keep in mind, readers of the first century, that Jesus is the ruler of all those kings of the earth. Um, And what makes him that ruler? He's the firstborn of the dead. No one else is in that category, right? Uh, Robert Mount says in his commentary, what the devil offered in return from worship, that is all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor, Jesus achieved through faithful obedience. He's referring to Matthew 4, 8. This is the temptation of Jesus where he says, look, just worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. Well, Jesus did in fact achieve this. He got all the kingdoms, but not by worshiping um, the tempter, Satan, the accuser, the deceiver, the murderer, but he got this um, authority through his faithfulness and his resurrection. So he did, in fact, um, get all the kingdoms on the earth, but through his faithfulness to God, not through uh, compromise to the devil and his temptation. Um, uh, Mounts goes on to say, vindicated by the resurrection, he is at the consummation to be universally acknowledged as the supreme ruler. And we see this again in Philippians 2, 10 to 11. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, That's an abbreviated form. And again, his resurrection um, is his vindication. So there we have uh, verse 5. So now moving on, the rest of 5 through 7, let me go ahead and read this. It says, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So this is a doxology. In other words, it's a praise of God and celebration for the work, the saving work of Jesus. So let's comment first on um, 5, to him who loves us and who has freed us. And by the way, this is the second part of 5. So the ruler of kings of earth is the middle of 5. And 5 continues, to him who loves us and has freed us. So this is one of those funky, you know, uh, verse divisions. Why does he point out, John, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood? Um, It's interesting that we can talk about um, the love of Christ that's mentioned all over the place in the New Testament. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now that's the God the Father's love giving the son, Uh, but the son also's love being reflected there because the father does nothing without the son and son does nothing without the father and Jesus willingly goes compelled by his love. And of course we have verses that talk about greater love has none, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So again, the attestation of God, or Jesus's love for his followers. Now what's interesting Prior to this, Jesus refers to uh, the servants of Christ, and typically we don't think of servant-master as a love relationship, so this is um, another layer that, um, that I think gives us a higher resolution view of the relationship between Jesus and his followers. There is a love dynamic here. Um, so uh, the love of Christ for his followers, um, love is what, what motivates for the faithful witness. Why did Jesus suffer unto death? Well, out of his love for the Father, as well as his love for his church. He is the good shepherd, right? He lays down his life for his sheep. Um, and so as we're going to see later on in the book, that Jesus is represented in the inaugural vision in his glorified form, white hair, eyes like fire, tongue like a sword, etc., 
But um, throughout the, the, the bulk of the book of Revelation, he is um, depicted as a lamb who was slain. And of course, that is a sign of his faithful obedience to the Father that, um, that renders him the authority to open the scroll and complete God's redemptive purposes in the world. But beyond that, we have to remember, too, that the slain lamb is also a reminder, not just of his obedience, but his love for the church, a constant reminder of his love. And it was his love who, that freed us from our sins by his blood. Love rescues, you know, when we talk about freed us from his sin, you know, normally, not normally, a lot of times in Scripture, Psalm 51, for example, we talk about cleansing by blood. Um, we see this too in Revelation where robes are washed in the blood and made white. And of course, there's some irony there because blood doesn't make white. And that is a sign, the white robes, however, is a sign of righteousness. But here it doesn't say cleansed, it says freed us right? And so um, the question then is, freed us from what exactly? And um, now we can answer that, you know, theologically, doctrinally, and we can talk about being freed from the guilt of sin uh, through, the, through justification. We can be talked about free, being freed of the power of sin um, through the doctrine of regeneration or the new birth. And we can be talked about freed to fully love God and neighbor uh, with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a freedom that comes there, but the question is, in the immediate context of the book of Revelation, freed us from what? And uh, the answer to that question is, freed us from the guilt and the shame of sin and the accusations of the dragon. So we're going to see in chapter 12 that the dragon is thrown out of heaven, and he accuses the brethren. He's thrown out of heaven on the basis of Christ's saving work. And he no longer has right to accuse the brethren, that is Christians, before the throne of God, like he accused Job before the throne of God, because Christ's work has lifted the guilt uh, that is the, um, the basis of that accusation. So the accusations of guilt and shame that come from sin that our great enemy heaps upon us in front of the Father, we are freed from that by the blood of Christ. Um, I think it's also important to point out that earlier it was mentioned how uh, Christians are servants of God, uh, which has the, the notion of enslavement, right? Indentured servitude or um, the fact that we owe him something, that we're working out of a duty or responsibility. Uh, but here there's a sense of freedom, right? And of course we know, and this is where we could go into some of the deeper theology of the freedom that comes from the cross. We are now freed from our sin condition of being entirely self-centered uh, and perverse in all of our faculties to uh, being filled with the love of God, perfect love casting out all sin, uh, to worship God as we were always intended to worship. We can't do that without the blood of Christ. We can't be who we were created to be by the Creator as His image bearers. We are enslaved to sin. We can't do that without the blood of Jesus that rescues us. So he's freed us from our sins by his blood. He has freed us to be true image bearers. He has freed us to love God willingly and passionately. He has freed us from the crushing weight of the guilt of sin. He has freed us from the oppressive lies of the enemy that God doesn't love us and doesn't care about us, therefore do what thou wilt, right? He has freed us from all of these things. And the list goes on and on. So, um, 
Now, interestingly enough, um, we're going to see that the effects of sin enslave the entire creation, uh, specifically to the powers of darkness that are manifest in the human governments of the world. And so uh, when we talk about freedom here, we have to keep in mind that it's the slain lamb who has the authority to open the scroll. So he doesn't just free us individually from our sins, he frees the entire creation from the tyrannical systemic oppression of sin. So the scroll can only be opened by the one who was slain, and the scroll is represented representative of God's redemptive plan for his entire world, for the cosmos, right? And so he doesn't just free you and I, he doesn't just free the church, he frees all of the creation from the stain and the oppression of sin, which we're going to see later on. So um, notice, too, uh, that freed us is past tense. It's not he is freeing us or he will free us. Now, that is to say that there are aspects of of our salvation that aren't, um, you know, fully in play yet. Um, we still suffer hunger and sickness and illness and all sorts of things in our physical bodies and our material bodies, um, and also fight against temptation and sin in the world today. Um, but there is, so while there are parts of our salvation that have yet to be consummated, um, um, that have yet to be fully completed, um, there are certain aspects of our salvation that are complete. He has freed us. And that freedom is the washing of the stain of guilt, justification, as well as the new birth, regeneration. That is, the birthing of new holy passions and desires for God. So there is a wonderful eternal freedom that we experience yet now while waiting for other aspects of our salvation to be complete. So um, in terms of the first century audience, what impact did this have? Well, they feel enslaved by the human governments around them that won't let them do a number of things, participate in certain markets, buy and sell. As we're going to see later on, you can only buy and sell with the mark of the beast. So there's a lot of oppressions and enslavement limitations of liberty. So this is a reminder that, yes, while you are living under limitations of liberty, you are in your spirit, spiritually free, and there's a sense of relief and encouragement and hope that comes with that reminder. Okay, so uh, let's see here. Made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. This, of course, is a call back to Exodus 19, 5 to 6, which says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be treasured possession, be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, what's interesting here is this this is in the book of Exodus, and the Exodus is a story of deliverance from a human kingdom, Pharaoh, right, an Egyptian slavery, that God brings them out of their oppression and creates a covenant with them. So a reminder of the Exodus story, which has lots of parallels to the lives that this first century church is living, is going to once again be a source of encouragement. Now, it made us a kingdom. That's in contrast. God's heavenly kingdom that is manifest among us in Christ our King is set in contradistinction to uh, the kingdom of the Roman Empire and the Caesars who claim divinity and the beast that's at control at controlling those empires and oppressing Christians. And so there's a visible kingdom and there's an invisible kingdom. Um, but also priests, mediators. It's not just um, escapism where we uh, run off and do our own uh, kingdom thing, right, in the desert. 
but rather um, he, he doesn't take us out of the world, right? But he leaves us in the world as salt and as light. So we are also priests, mediators uh, between God and the fallen, broken world, the lost world. And so there's this evangelical role for the church to play, even in the midst of times of persecution. And so, yes, there is a kingdom, but it is not a separated escapist kingdom. It is a kingdom that stays... Um, interwoven, let's say, with the world, in the world, but not of the world. Uh, So the calling in from the book of Exodus is a reminder of the deliverance of God's people under similar situation, that there is a metaphysical kingdom, there's God's kingdom that is very different than human kingdoms, uh, but it is not totally separated from the world in all senses, certainly in some senses, uh, but remains in the world as a mediator uh, between the world and God. Um, So, Uh, Craig Kester, really helpful comment here in his commentary on the book of Revelation, writes, On the one hand, belonging to the kingdom means confessing that legitimate authority belongs to the Creator and the Lamb. On the other hand, it means resisting the claims of those who take God's place. The redeemed will reign only through the resurrection that enables them to participate fully in the benefits of Christ. And so again, one has to one can't serve two masters, right? You can either be of the kingdom of Rome or you can be of the kingdom of God. Um, however, this is an eternal kingdom. This is a kingdom that looks very different. We've, yeah, we've touched on the distinctions of God's kingdom. Um, a kingdom set in opposition to human earthly kingdoms who reign tyrannically yet temporarily over the creation. So the human kingdoms are temporary, God's kingdom eternal. Okay. Um, last part of our six, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glorifying God is the natural outflow of being freed from sin. So um, remember in the previous verse, he says, uh, let me scroll up here, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, therefore to him be the glory and dominion forever. So this doxology is a glorification of God as a natural outflow of being freed from sin. Um, you know, he uh, who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. Worship of God is not something to be forced, but something that is a natural outflow of the recognition and acknowledgement and the actualization of God's redeeming work in one's life. Um, so, but notice, not, notice too, it's not just glory, but also dominion, right? His reign and his authority that will outlast the reign and authority of human kingdoms. And of course, amen. Um, amen is an interesting thing, um, but specifically for John, uh, Jesus says all the time in John's gospel, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you, and that's amen, amen. So it means truly here, but not just um, like a stylistic feature of John's writing, but I'll also say that this connects to the faithful witness, faithful witness, um, faithfulness, truly. Uh, the truth is absolutely essential for John. Jesus is the logos. Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's, John is insistent in his view and revelation that there's all sorts of deception in the world that keeps the world oppressed, and Christians exist as the faithful witness, as a proclamation as to what the truth is. So amen is saying, it is true, right? Um, it is true. All right, so... Uh, That's verses 5 and 6. We'll be on to 7 here. Behold, he is coming uh, with the clouds in our next episode. Uh, Thank you for joining us. And until next time, this is Seminary Unboxed, the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary.